Well, good morning. It's so good to be here, and I mean that. I, uh, I picked up a cold this week from my wife, and uh, she picked it up from our other family members, and so it's running its course, and that's why I came in late. I didn't want to pass it on to any of you, and I'll be sure to step out of the way at the end and not give it to you. I, I, but I, it, for me to be here, I'm very thankful, and, uh, and I can't wait to get into the Word of God with you this morning. If you're visiting Vero Bible Fellowship, maybe for the first time, or maybe you've only been here a few weeks, uh, we are just a church that, that, first of all, finds great joy in fellowship and connecting. I, I love that before service, coming early so I can just hang out with people and get to know people. And uh, so I hope you have had a chance to do that, and if not, maybe at the close of the service you'll take time. We also love the Word of God, so we're going to open the Word and thank you, Bruce, for reading that passage for us. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. We've been in Matthew's Gospel since last September, and we should finish up here this month. And uh, very excited for where we're going in the future. We're going to spend a couple weeks in the book of Jude, and uh, then we're going to uh, start a new series in, in September, and that series will focus on the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, or I would rather say the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And since Jesus established the church through his disciples, uh, now we're going to study the church in the book of Acts. So it's a nice progression for us. But today we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, and we're going to pick up at verse 15. We've already taken last week to just focus in on verse 15 by itself because it's such a powerful and important verse. It's, he, Jesus said, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. It, it is important. Jesus thinks it's important that we understand Matthew chapter 24, that we understand uh, what Daniel has to say in the Old Testament about uh, the end times, about eschatology, it, what Revelation has to say to us, what Second Thessalonians has to say to us. Throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, uh, you find numerous prof prophecies that are given regarding end times. And you and I need to understand the end times. And so Jesus says, please get this. He said in verse 16, then let those who are in, the, in Judea flee to the mountains. So first he tells us we need to understand what's going to be happening in the end. That's what this Olivet Discourse is all about, chapter 24 and chapter 25 of Matthew. He starts out and he shares some of the things that will determine or that you'll know the end by, the end times, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and the events leading up to that. Uh, I, I want to share with you that all through the Gospel of Matthew, through this study the last year, We've been studying Jesus Christ as the King. Now look, we belong to the United States of America, and I am so thankful to be an American. I would rather be an American than any other nationality on the face of the globe. I am an American through and through, and I thank God for that. I'm thankful for our system. <clears throat> Excuse me. Boy, I'm going to need a cough drop already. Man, oh man. Let me pop one of these bad boys so I can continue on. Okay, so I'm thankful that, that we have a constitutional republic. 
I'm thankful that we have three branches of government that are supposed to check one another. I'm thankful for a president. I'm thankful for our Congress, for the legislation. I'm thankful for the judicial system we have in the Supreme Court. I mean, I'm thankful as an American. But I want to also say that while I am an American citizen, I am also right now today a citizen of heaven. And Jesus is my king. And Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here right now. He was present with the disciples. And then after he left the earth, the Holy Spirit of God came and filled the hearts of believers. On the first day of the early church, 3,000 people got saved. Holy Spirit came into 3,000 people. Don't let anybody tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you're not spirit-filled. I don't know where that doctrine ever came from to think that you're saved, but you're not spirit-filled. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he doesn't come in a little bit. All of him comes into you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're accessing, that you're taking advantage of the fact that the Spirit's in you and living by faith fully, but he's there. He's ready to minister to you. He brings you into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And even with all the mess that's happening in our world today, happening in our nation, happening in our state, my heart goes out to those families who've lost loved ones out of the the, the uh, condominium that, that crumbled in Miami. Those events are going to happen again and again and again. I don't say that to make light of it. I'm saying that that's the world we live in. It's very sad. But even with all this stuff happening around us, God still lives in you. You are still part of the kingdom of heaven. It's the greatest part of your life. Why? Because after you die you cease to be an American, but you do not cease to be a Christian. You spend eternity with God the Father in heaven. Amen? So all of the book of Matthew is to keep that frame of reference to really understand who God is to us. He's everything. Jesus Christ is the king. And now the king is telling us that while we're living in the kingdom, spiritually speaking, in the midst of this kingdom of heaven that's in us, there's still trial and tribulation. And it's coming and it's going to get worse as the days come to the end. That's what he's been saying to us. I, I've given you that there are basically two lines of thought regarding eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end. And two uh, primary, they're not the only ones, but two primary schools of thought. One is an amillennial view. And in, in an amillennial view, you're taught that when Jesus ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago, at that point, the tribulation began. They don't take the words in Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah, uh, they don't take those words literally, not all of them, they don't take them all literally. And so they see that as just speaking of a, it was a symbol of an era. 
And so we're in the tribulation. We've been in the tribulation for 2,000 years, and the tribulation will not end until Jesus returns. That's, it's a very simple approach, and that's what they believe. And then there's others who take a pre-millennial, others take a post-millennial. There's, there's all kinds of millennial belief systems, you know, um, uh, like, like Marshall uh, said to the elders we were talking the other night in, in the elder meeting, he said, I'm, I, I'm just going to take the pan-millennial view, just joking around. He, he said, I believe it's all going to pan out. Amen. Okay, so whichever view, you know. So I'm not trying to tell you that I know 100% factually from the Word of God that one, e, that one type or one view is the view. I will tell you that I think there's strong evidence for the premillennial view, which I take, but I think you can also take a different view. And guess what? None of this stuff is primary to salvation. Not a single ounce of it changes your salvation. And not a single ounce of it changes the fact that, that Jesus is coming again. All views believe the same about Jesus returning. Amen? He's going to return. And so that's the key. So I don't want us to get so hung up in the different views that we get loose sight of the, of the gospel and salvation. Okay, but what Jesus, I believe, has been saying to us is that there is coming a day, it's going to get worse, and he's trying to prepare the Jews because of all the people on the earth that are going to face the tribulation, and I believe it's more of a seven-year period. If I could give you a layout in the premillennial view, it would be this, that we're moving along through time, and all of a sudden, Jesus raptures all the saints in the world out. We're caught up. That's what the word means, to be caught up with him in the air to forever be with the Lord. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're going through our days like normal, and all of a sudden, believers are caught up. At that point, immediately, the Holy Spirit, he's not that he's no longer here, but God restrains him somewhat so that evil can go even farther down the downgrade and immediately at the time that the church is raptured out of the world now the antichrist shows up but not as a beast he doesn't look like an evil person he doesn't do evil things in fact he comes and he brings to the world peace but jesus said it's a false peace he said that clearly in revelation he brings a false peace. He actually brokers a, a, an alliance, a peace treaty between Israel and the Middle East, Israel and Europe, Israel and any nation that has issue with Israel, which tells you Jesus is saying that as time goes, more and more nations will turn against Israel. Do we not see it turning in the United States against Israel by some people who live here who serve in office, public office? We're seeing it, okay? And so he's going to broker this peace, and after he brokers the peace, Israel believes in him. They think, what a guy. This guy did what nobody in all of history has been able to do for us, and this guy is our Savior. He, is, he has come to help us. They don't see him as Messiah, but they do see him as someone they can follow. They literally make peace with this man. And, and that takes three and a half years to get to that point. And then he 
he goes to Jerusalem where they have established a temple. Whether it's a permanent temple, a temporary temple, I don't know. But the Jews begin to go back to the practice, practices of the temple. And this Antichrist shows up at the temple, goes into the temple, into the holy place, and he offers up an unholy uh, sacrifice. And it's a wicked, a detestable sacrifice before God. And he's not doing it to God, he's doing it to himself. He literally walks out and declares, I am God. And he commands the Jews and everybody else on the earth to worship him. That is the uh, abomination of desolation. That's the abomination that he, he brings to the temple and then makes that announcement, which brings desolation for three and a half years. So you had three and a half years before he walks in where tribulation has begun once the, once the church leaves. That's the beginning of three and a half years of tribulation. And he comes and brings peace, false peace. And then you have three and a half years where he, the beast, by Satan, under God's sovereign will, God allows Satan to have power for a time. And through the Antichrist, through the false prophet, they do many things, signs and wonders that they will do, fooling and deceiving many into following them. And so it's going to be an all-out chaos, but the church will not be here. Now, during that three and a half years, even the three and a half years, uh, the first three and a half years after the church is raptured, all the way through the seven years, God is also going to pour out grace on this earth unlike anything you've ever seen. And multitudes of people are going to be saved during the tribulation. But as quickly as they're saved, they will suffer and many will be persecuted to death because they believed. This is going to be a time on the earth when hatred, where uh, detestable things are off the chart, happening every day. And people are wondering what's going on. They're trying to trust in whoever tells them that they can do this and that. I can bring peace again. I can do that. And people are just turning to anybody and everybody because they are so hopeless and helpless. But only Christ can fulfill them. Only Christ can help them. And that witness will be on the earth. So Jesus here in our text, now that we've kind of, by the way, um, it ends pretty well. After seven years of great tribulation, tribulation is seven years, the last three and a half years from the time of the abomination of desolation at the temple until the end of that three and a half years, that's called the great tribulation. So you got the tribulation, the first three and a half, the great tribulation is the last three and a half. At the end of that, Christ returns. And he, he doesn't have to do battle. He doesn't have to raise a sword against Satan. He speaks the word. And he sends Satan into not just outer darkness, but the eternal lake of fire. He sends every evil person after the great, great white throne judgment he sends every evil person who rebelled against Christ, who never believed him, they will all go to the same place that Satan and his demonic forces are sent to. 
which is an eternal lake of fire. They have not gone there yet. Those who died and who are evil, who did not receive Christ, who mocked him, laughed at him, laughed at Christians, uh, they are in a holding place. It's a, it's a place where there is utter torment right now. But it is not where they will end up. When they end up there, they'll be given a particular type of body when they're raised up. They'll be given a body that they will live in in this eternal place of judgment called the lake of fire. And the torment, the, the suffering, the agony is going to be unbelievable. And so, so in the end, the church returns with Christ. We were raptured out. We return with him. And those who are still here, there's a thousand-year reign. Christ comes and rules on the earth. After the thousand-year reign, we all go to be with him. Amen. All right, let's go home. Um, I, I, that's pretty good stuff. That Jesus loves us enough, our king loves us enough, that he would give us insight into what's coming. Now, why? If we're not going to be here when this happens, if the disciples aren't going to be on the earth when this happens, and they weren't, why would he say these things to us? Because he has already told his disciples, and he will tell them again, look, your responsibility is to preach the gospel, to save as many as possible, so that if, in fact, this premillennial view is true, and there is a rapture, those folks will get to go to heaven. Amen? In the rapture. And the rapture can happen at any time, by the way. There's no more prophecy in Scripture that has to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. It can happen now. It can happen today. It can happen right now. Boop, I'm gone. You're gone. Those of you left, you weren't true believers. But you've been hearing the gospel. You can believe immediately. You won't go up, but you'll be a believer. And you'll make it through the tribulation. You might not make it physically, but you will make it through. And so that's what Jesus is dealing with. So he says, when you see this abomination of desolation spoken of, and look what he says, by the prophet Daniel. It's already, it's already been spoken of in the Old Testament. What's Jesus doing? He's affirming the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, stop it as Christians. If you think for a second that you don't need to read the Old Testament because you have the New Testament. They're not pitting one against the other. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You need both. Jesus is saying, I, I know both the Old and the New Testament. I know what, what has already been given you, and I know what's going to be given you through the New Testament after I'm gone. I know it all. And I'm telling you right now, you need to be in the, in the Word of God, the Old and New. Every Thursday night right now, we are studying the first Samuel, we'll be starting second Samuel next week or two couple weeks. We're going to stay in the Old Testament. We're going to keep studying. And, and then they'll do a series. We're doing Matthew now. We're doing Acts. Then we'll go and do an Old Testament series on Sunday morning. And we'll switch it up. Why? Because we need to be in the Word. So when he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Where are the mountains? What are you talking about? Probably a reference to the southeast region of Jerusalem, particularly the Dead Sea region, okay? 
where there are many caves and there's many places of refuge. If, you, if you've been in our first Samuel study, <coughs> excuse me, studying David, you know that that's where David hid from King Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. He went right to those same caves that Jesus is here saying to the Jews, when the day of abomination desolation happens, you better head to the, head to the caves. Okay? Uh, verse 17, let no one who was, in the, who was on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. You won't have time once the day of abomination desolation happens when that Antichrist steps out and announces he's God and he will demand worship. You don't have time if you're standing out front of your house to walk back in and get a coat. Run. That's how quickly things are going to go from bad to very worse. I mean the worst. Okay? And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, not, and never will be. So Jesus himself said, after that after this happens, and he talked, the first half of this chapter, he talked about some of the things that are happening during the first half of the, of the tribulation. Now he specifically says that abomination of desolation, that's the trigger for the second half, the last three and a half years, and he calls it a great tribulation right here in the text. And such has never been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This is a reference to a future time when God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth. Jesus is addressing those who didn't go up with the raptured church, if that's true, because they weren't yet saved. This is during the seven-year period that they will be saved. They'll be martyred, many of them, and they will enter heaven. Now, in Revelation, I want to connect the dots from what Jesus is saying here to the book of Revelation, and also even back in the Old Testament. So in Revelation 7, Chapter 7, verse 13 through 17. Write that down just for your notes. Revelation 7, 13 through 17. It says, as John was seeing this vision of heaven, he literally has seen the throne room of God, the temple of God. And, and then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? So John on the Isle of Patmos, he's there, he's an old man, God wants to reveal to him the things that are going to happen in the end. But also, not just the things that will happen, he wants to reveal Jesus to him in the end. That's what revelation means. It's, by the way, it's not revelations. It's the book of Revelation. And it's a revelation in the Greek means apocalypsis. It's the great revealing. The revealing of Jesus Christ and the revealing of the events happening at the end. Now, you want to see who Jesus is in Revelation? Who he is, which by the way, what John saw when he was caught, caught up in heaven to see all this, that's, during the, that's after the rapture. He's seeing literally in heaven the church. You and I. He's literally, now think about that. you got to go back 2,000 years ago to see John being caught up to see What's going to happen after you and I have been raptured into the church? That's how far forward and in the future what he's seeing. 
It's pretty, pretty amazing. It's kind of hard to, it's mind-boggling to think about, really. But, but what does he see? He says, who are these? Clothed in white robes, the elder said. And from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. You're asking, but you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's how I know that the church is there with him because it's, it's talking about the great tribulation. We've already been ushered out. He's saying there are people in heaven with white robes who came, who got to heaven because of the great tribulation. That means they got saved after the church was raptured and they came to salvation and they, many of them have died now martyr's death. Some just naturally died, but most of them probably martyr deaths and now they're in heaven and John's seeing them. So we see these that were saved after the rapture of the church who have come through persecution and martyrdom and they're now in the throne room of God in heaven. Remember now, all of this is in the future. It hasn't happened yet. Verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been saved through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. They were not saved out of their own strength. They were not saved out of their own good works. They were saved through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Verse 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Listen to this. These are the people who have suffered in the great tribulation. And when they were commanded to bow down and worship the Antichrist, they would not do it. They remained faithful. They endured. Why? Because they were saved. Because God's in them. And look what it says about them in heaven now. This is, what, this is what's happening to them in heaven after they are after they die a martyr's death. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. By the way, the temple there is the throne room. In heaven, the temple is the throne room. And he's, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, which tells you that they were hungering, probably had food rations, they were cut off from a lot of food. They were cut off from everything. Neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be, be, their, be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So all the suffering was worth it. It was worth it. Here's what we need to know. In the midst of this seven-year tribulation, which is a time of unparalleled judgment, there's also going to be a time of unparalleled grace in salvation. Aren't you thankful that even when God is pouring out, and by the way, all seven years are part of God's plan. All of it is part of God's plan, including the Antichrist going in and making a, uh, an abomination sacrifice and walking out and demanding that he is God and he needs to be. Listen, God's allowing all that. It's all playing to his final glory, every bit of it. And so what we see here is, is this, this great suffering that's happening, great suffering, but yet there's a great salvation. That's how much God loves 
people. He's constantly reaching, even while he's pouring out the 21 judgments on the earth during the tribulation. He's still sending angels to command and declare and herald that he is God. He's righteous. He's just. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, just write it down. Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. John on the Isle of Patmos has this vision, and he sees this great multitude in heaven. That He says, look at this, he says, that no one could number so many people. He looks, here's no possible way to number them all. He's like, this is incredible, the multitude that's in heaven. From Listen to this, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Who does God love? Everybody. Every color. Every nation. We're the ones. Satan is the one who wants to divide people by color. Anything you see today that divides people, that segregates people, I'm telling you right now, that is of the enemy. In heaven, it's not that way. That's why preachers on earth of every color ought to be getting along. And they ought to be proclaiming a message to people that provides what they see in heaven. We ought to be bringing people together, not apart. Standing before the, these, all these nations, all these tribes and peoples of every language, every color, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. What are they crying Many of them were martyred in the great tribulation. What could they be crying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They, the central theme of these saints who've been saved and plus us that will be there with them is salvation. Salvation is the centerpiece. It's what it's all about. That's why we're there and we all know it. Not one of us got there because of our goodness. Not one of us got there by our church attendance. Not one of us got there because our parents knew Jesus. Every one of us are there because our Lord gave us such a great salvation, a free gift. Amen? Having an emblem of righteousness, what is that? White robes. Everybody in heaven has a white robe. Everybody wears a white robe. Kenny, Chatham, I can't wait to see you in a white robe. And they worship God for salvation because he's the sole source of salvation. There is salvation found in no other on the earth. Sometimes we take our salvation for granted. No one in heaven takes salvation for granted because it's the centerpiece. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, talking about the tribulation, the last three and a half years, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. That's how, that's how horrendous, that's how detestable, that's how much of an abomination is going to take place on the earth in those days. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If the afflictions during the tribulation were to continue, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short of total destruction. Both Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, 
and Revelation 12:14 suggests that the actual length of time Antichrist will be permitted to terrorize the world is fixed at three and a half years. That's, that's as much time as he gets. I'm telling you, God can turn the faucet on of judgment and he can shut it down whenever he wants. That's how awesome your God is. There is none like him. And then if anyone say, says to you, verse 23, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Jesus is the, this is Jesus, the Son of God, saying this. And he's not just saying, look, even though the primary focus of this teaching is end times, yet much of it can be, can be lived out by us. We can see the beginnings of these things. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as, to lead, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying that the prophets, these false prophets and false Christs are going to rise up. They're going to do signs and wonders. They're going to lead many people astray. They're going to lead people who are sitting in churches doing signs and wonders right now, looking for signs and wonders, trying to get some kind of an emotional experience because they hang on that. they got to have it. Many of them are going to be led astray by the signs and wonders of the enemy and not even recognize the difference. Why? Because they're not elect. All that means when it says elect is they're not, they've not been called by God. They're not saved. They're not truly saved. Truly saved people will not be deceived. But everybody else, religious people, people who know the lingo, who can go to church every Sunday, they know how to hang out with Christians, and they look just like them, they sound like them, they talk like them, but they're not saved. They will be deceived. This is God purifying his church. And in that day, he's going to be purifying. He says, don't follow these knuckleheads. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. He's not just saying that for the end, too. He's saying that for you and I. He's saying that to his disciples. Because there were, there were false Christs that came up during, while, the, while the disciples were on the earth. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. He says, uh, uh, just whatever they tell you, just know it's not me. You ever heard of somebody who claimed to be Messiah? Who was that guy in Miami that claimed to be Messiah? Hundreds of thousands of people following this knucklehead. There's people claiming to have, be prophets of God, and they can give a prophecy. And sometimes the prophecy comes true. Why? Because they're demonically led. There's powers of darkness at work on this earth. Jesus said that Satan is the prince of this world. God's given him a little bit of power for a short time, and then God's going to pull back on that, yank on that chain, and send him down to eternal damnation. But until that happens, he's going to deceive people, and God's going to allow it. Why? Because God's purifying his church. He's going to separate the wheat from the shaft. And if you're a church that focuses on the shaft all the time, which is the weeds, and you never feed the sheep, which is the wheat stalk that grows, then those people are being duped and they're going to one day fall into the hands of these who are doing signs and wonders that don't even belong to God. That's what we're going to see. And those 
in those days, had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And he goes on, he says, if you look down at uh, verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So first Jesus said, don't follow these guys, don't follow those guys, somebody's doing signs and wonders over here in this place. Don't go after that nonsense. Don't go over here. Don't go by what this guy says. He can draw a big crowd in Washington, D.C., because he's a prophet. Well, it's possible that God's using somebody to speak a word, okay? It's possible. But generally speaking, don't trust man. Don't ever trust man. You trust the Lord. You want to be a person of the book more than a person of a person. I don't belong to a man. I belong to Jesus. Amen? Therefore, everything I believe comes out of this book. And if it doesn't prove true by the word of God, then I ain't going to go after that. I don't want to be part of that. You shouldn't either. But, but Jesus says, but guess what? With all that nonsense going on, let me, let me just tell you. When I return, you'll know it. In fact, the entire earth will know when the real Jesus shows up. Because it says, look what it says here. He, this is Jesus speaking. He said, uh, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the sun. If lightning struck all the way across from east to west, everybody would see it. Everybody would know it, right? He says, that's what it's going to be like when I return. He says then, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What? How do you know the location of a carcass? Because you see the vultures circling overhead. He says, you're going to know when I return, believe me. You're going to know it. Not only will you see people who give out shouts of praise to God because they're believers, but you'll see people who all of a sudden just fall apart like a corpse. They'll realize, oh my goodness, I missed it. Verse 29, look what Jesus said. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When Jesus returns, I'm telling you right now, everything, even inanimate objects, begin to shake. <laughs> These supernatural occurrences are a common feature. That's, or you'll find them, if I, I'll just give you some passages, Isaiah 13, 9, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, 10, Amos 8, 9, it's all through the Old Testament. Whenever the day of the Lord's spoken of, these kinds of supernatural occurrences are mentioned. So we know we can tie those events to the return of the Lord. Verse 30, look what Jesus says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. In other words, what he's saying there is, the Son of Man himself is the sign. You're not going to need some other sign to recognize, oh, that's Jesus. No, no, the Son of Man is the sign. When he comes in the clouds, you will recognize him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, in the, well, first of all, in, the, in our text, Jesus said, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Once he shows up, they'll, they're all going to mourn. So if you look at Zechariah 12, 10, it says, and I will pour out on the house of David, that would be Israel, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that would be those who live in Jerusalem. <laughs> I just had to throw that in. 
a spirit of grace and, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him, on whom, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, excuse me, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Mm, that's in Zechariah. So here in, in verse 30, the latter part of the verse, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So all the elect from heaven and all the elect on the earth are gathered and assembled before Christ. This is the culmination of world history, folks, ushering in the millennial reign of Christ. That's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And in the millennial reign of Christ, tribulation believers, along with the redeemed from both the Old Testament and the New Testament era, will reign with Christ during the thousand-year reign. Praise God. How many of you want that today? Amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So the millennial reign of Christ is referenced in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. That's the tribulation believers along with the redeemed, both from the Old Testament and New Testament era, will reign with Christ during the thousand-year reign. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, I mentioned it. Let me go ahead and read it for you. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. We've already seen that in our lifetime, people, witnesses of Jesus Christ who have been beheaded, haven't we? We've seen the video on TV. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads, on their hands, they come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they, have, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the bodies of unbelievers of all ages will not be resurrected until the great white throne of judgment. So all unbelievers will not come forth out of the ground until the second judgment. or the, I'm, I'm sorry, until uh, they come into this, this second period of time of resurrection. The first resurrection is for the saints, for the believers. We receive a glorified body, but, this, but the unbeliever... It's a second resurrection, and it's for judgment. Oh, what a, wow. Could you imagine being raised and seeing a white throne of judgment and knowing that this is the judgment of you being sent to hell because you did not believe? And by the way, and you know you didn't believe then. You, people deny it going into hell. Well, I don't, I don't know there's a Jesus. When they come out, they're going to know it. They'll know it. They'll know that what God's doing is just and righteous. Not one of them will cry out, that's unfair. 
not one. Going in the ground, they cry it out. Coming out, they see it for what it is. It's just like uh, Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus talked about in Luke 16. And they both die. The poor man was a believer in, in God. And he's found in Abraham's bosom was the name of the place. It was literally the holding place before Christ went to the cross and died and was resurrected. They were kept in a holding place, Abraham's bosom. And the unbelievers, the rich man that knew Lazarus, this poor man, but was not a believer, he literally went to another holding place and he could look across and see Abraham's bosom. He could see Lazarus. And he spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, please have Lazarus just come with one drop of water on his finger to put on my tongue because I'm in utter torment here. And Abraham said back to him, he can't come to you and you can't go to him. And he said, well then, listen, this is, the, this is the unbeliever in this holding place where all unbelievers are right now who have died. Here's what he said, the next words. Please send him back that he might warn my brothers of this place. He didn't plead, I deserve to be there. This isn't fair. He knew it was fair. Now, this unbeliever in this holding place has become an evangelist. Please send him back to warn my brothers. If those in hell right now could speak, you know what they'd be saying to you and I? Please go and share with my family members. I don't care if they reject it. Let them know the truth. So the bodies of unbelievers of all ages will not be resurrected until the great white throne judgment. And, and let me just clarify here. The scripture does teach two kinds of resurrection. First is the resurrection of life, and the other is the resurrection of judgment. You'll find that in John 5.29, in Daniel 12.2, and in Acts 24.15. And the first kind of resurrection is described as the resurrection of righteous. Luke 14.14. 14. The resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming. It's called the better resurrection in Hebrews 11.35. It includes only the redeemed of the church age of Old Testament believers and those who die during the tribulation. They will enter the kingdom in resurrection bodies along with believers who survived the tribulation. The second kind of resurrection, the resurrection of the unconverted, will then be raised and judged, and then they will receive their final bodies suited for torment in hell. Not everything Jesus said was, ple was pleasing to hear. Not everything he said was easy to hear. But we need to hear it. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Now Jesus begins to go in a different direction here. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Are we beginning to see things in this life that Jesus is referring to? Yes, we are. I think he's near. I think that's how he wants us to live our lives, with an absolute expectancy that he will return. 
When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, only a short time remains until summer. Likewise, when the final labor pains begin, back in verse 14 he talked about that, Christ's return is near. Right, he's right at the door. He's right at the door. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus went up to heaven, ascended. The Bible says that a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. How long has Jesus been in heaven? Two days. And he's standing on the doorpost saying, Father, can I go back yet? And it's going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen soon. Verse 34, truly I say to you, this is Jesus now, our Savior, our Master, our King, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I don't interpret that. There's no way you can that he's speaking of the generation of the disciples that he's talking with. He's talking about the generation that's going to be alive when he, as he described all these things. That generation. Those who will be here during the tribulation. That generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay? Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Get your eyes off of things of this world. Get your eyes off of the news channels, the media. Get your eyes off of the books and all the stuff that the liberal, uh, want, liberals want you to read. I'm telling you right now, keep your eyes on the words of Jesus because all that other nonsense is going to pass away. But Christ, his words will never pass away. The disciples then come into it. But concerning that day and hour, to no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus doesn't even know the day and the hour that he's returning. He's waiting on the Father. See, God the Father orchestrates everything. The disciples wanted a fixed time. You know, give us a precise time. But this, is, this was not for them to know. Christ's emphasis, rather than giving them a time and a day, what's his emphasis here? He closes out this chapter saying, I want you to focus on faithfulness, watchfulness, stewardship, and expectancy and preparedness for my return. That's what, we, that's what we're here for. You, our focus and our time is faithfulness, watchfulness, stewardship, expectancy, and preparedness until the day of the Lord. He's about to reinforce that, those things that I just said, in a parable here in our chapter and then another parable at the beginning of chapter 25 that we'll hit next week. Verse 40, uh, 37, for as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept all, them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man in that generation. So what he, by the way, when he refers to Noah in that day, see, our first thought is the wickedness, the wickedness of the people in that day. He's not addressing the wickedness of the people in that day. He's talking about the time to know. You'll know when. And, and yet, you won't know. It'll be like a thief in the night. So he's talking more about the timing of his return and what it's going to be like. And what was it like for those in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking and giving to marriage and being married and having fun and raising kids, and they were just living life. They weren't paying attention to the fact that Noah's building a boat. They weren't paying attention to the words as he heralded the truth about, from God about uh, the, the times that they were living in. They weren't listening, and neither will people at the end listen and look for these signs 
because they'll be too busy dealing with life's issues. It's going to completely catch them off guard when the Son of Man returns. That's what he's saying. In verse 40, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, as Christians, you don't know when, but you know he is coming. The people of the world do not think he's coming. You know he's coming. Therefore, stay alert, stay watchful, be ready. Live your life in such a way as a steward of God that, that you are living knowing I know he's coming back and my life proves it. The way I live my life proves that I believe Jesus is returning. Verse 44, therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So as believers, we're not to be so overtaken by life issues, food, drink, marriage, parenting, career, educational pursuits, retirement, that we're not mindful of the Lord's return. As God's people, we're to stay in a continual state of readiness. There's two things these parables teach that we're going to look at, this one here and the next one. One teaches that we should be uh, ready in case he comes sooner than anticipated, and the second one teaches that we should be prepared in the case he delays longer than expected. So either way, be ready. Verse 45, <coughs> excuse me, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give uh, them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Christ wants to find us when he returns still looking for his coming though by the way we live truly i say to you he will set him over his all his possessions but if that wicked servant says to himself my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hip with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Here's what I believe. I don't think this is a way of finding out if you're saved or not by whether you stay prepared. I believe those who are, who are saved are prepared. They'll live in a state of preparation. But there are those who are acting like they're saved, so sometimes they're prepared, and other times they're wicked. And they're going to be found out. It'll be obvious to Christ and to all. I mean, Christ knows now who, who it is. And it'll come out that they were never faithful to God. They were incapable of enduring to the very end. Christians will endure to the end. So here's the point. If you're a believer, a true believer of Christ, already you think about these things. And you live your life in a way to please and honor God and bring glory to his name and prepare others for his coming. Amen? It's not something we just kind of never think about. If that's the case, you never think about it, you might not be saved. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are they weeping and gnashing teeth for? That speaks of the inconsolable grief. It speaks of the relentless torment that people will feel. Why? Because whenever you find weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's always associated with hell. They'll be thinking of what they missed by not believing. 
So what's the gist here? What's Jesus saying here at the end? And in chapter 24, he's saying, I'm telling you what's going to come, and I'm telling you as believers, no matter what era, what generation you're in, leading up to the end, you are to be in a constant state of faithfulness, a constant state of expectancy, a constant state of determination to share the gospel. You should live your life in such a way as if you think he could come today. That's how we should live our lives. If that doesn't compel you to share Christ with somebody today, I don't know what will. This is such a good word for us. Why? Because our king wants us to experience heaven right here on earth. How do you experience heaven on earth? It's simple. When you share Christ and somebody by the gospel is saved and you get to have a front row seat to see salvation, whoa, man, did you see that? That's awesome. You want to be that person that experiences it. Amen? Well, you got to take some risks. You got to walk by faith. You got to share Christ with people. Run the risk of people, you know, rejecting you. What's what's a person's rejection compared to the rejection when Jesus says, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you give us the the key to in, to enduring through the trials and tribulations of our lives. You give us the key to living life, why we should be living for you today. And the answer is, the key is, because you're with us. You're in us. It was Moses who, the Scripture says, left the pleasures of sin in Egypt in order that he might be with God's people And as he was walking with God's people, what did he find? Forty years of suffering in a desert. But God was with him. If he had simply lived out his life in Egypt, he would have eventually become Pharaoh. He would have had everything he ever wanted on earth. He wouldn't have faced trial and tribulation. But he would have died and heard Jesus say to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoer. And so he was willing to go through the trials and the suffering of this life. Why? Because he knew God is with me. He's always been with me. He will always be with me. And we're the same, Father. Remind us that this morning as believers, that we might go out this week and share the faith of Jesus Christ with others without compromise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, church family, for being here. And I pray today, if you, if you have come to realize, man, I'm, I, I'm not saved. Um, we've got elders, we've got some prayer partners who will pray with you. They can help you with that to understand what salvation is. And you can receive Jesus if you haven't already. And we'd love to minister to you that way. And I want to thank you just for putting up with me today and my cold. And uh, uh, I, I feel like I'm half here in my head, but uh, hopefully it made some sense to you today. And the Lord blesses you. May his word abide in your heart all week long. Amen? Amen. Praise God. God bless you, church family.